0: We're back with the Concrete Conservatives Statues and Stories Hour. We have Adam Levinson. How are you today?
1: Good evening, everybody.
0: We are going to talk about how Samuel Adams and John Adams really made their dough. I love the story of the racket because I believe that every all the great wealth in this country, somehow, in some way, they cut a corner, they found a way oh, come on. and made some money and took it away from the government. Because I love when people can actually skirt the United States government's overtaxations of the American people. So go ahead and lay it on to us, Adam. Thank you for calling.
1: By the way, thank you for having me, and I want to begin by giving a little bit of background about how these topics get selected. But before I go into tonight's topic, I want to thank you for the conversation you had the last couple hours. I did hear bits and pieces of it as I was driving, and uh, I I appreciate the discussion. And uh, what I want to point out to you is that statutesandstories.com, which is a website, it's non-political, so it doesn't take positions.
0: Even though we try to draw you in from time Uh, to time. You
1: do, and you will probably try to do that tonight. (laughs) And feel free to do it. So uh, the observation, though, is that uh, the website, posts a couple times a month, important statutes over time, over, over history. This is English history, American history. And in this, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Dutch history and French history, because we're going to be talking about economics. And uh, it was randomly that I chose this topic within the last month or so, because I'm trying to fill in the different subjects and the different topics on the website. So when I've posted in the past about the American Revolution, I have posted about the laws that gave rise to the American Revolution, the Stamp Act and the Tea Act. And that was all part Part of what's called mercantilism and the mercantilistic theory so i'm trying to fill in some of these older statutes that precede the t-act and the stamp act which are all about mercantilism which is the main topic today
0: well give us a, a give us uh, let the audience know uh what era you're talking about so they get a, a time frame
1: sure so we're going to go back as far as we're going to talk not just about your prior two hours you we were talking about jews we're going to talk about the puritans today we're going to talk about catholics and we're also going to talk about a famous jewish Portuguese economist. uh, And we're going to talk about the the replacement and the subsequent theory that replaced mercantilism, uh, which, of course, is modern classical economics. So we'll talk about a whole bunch of economists.
2: You mean David Ricardo?
1: You got it so David Ricardo, how did you know <laughs> um, and I know Ed's background so I'm sure he's going to have a lot to share on uh, classically oh please
0: you know two attorneys complimenting each other you know oh, the audience no. doesn't want to hear that
2: All right go ahead go, go ahead. ahead
0: you guys you know you guys are superior to all other human beings no, we already no. know. Just talk to the. And part just of that
1: is the school that Ed went to, because the University of Chicago, which is a school which is wedded in conservative economics, so part of the conversation towards the end of the hour is going to be about the economic theory that replaced the the mercantilist theory, right. and uh, that's why Ed is uh, you know comes from that, that that school of thought. So that's yeah, why I that. think a lot of this is going to be in his wheelhouse.
2: Right, that's Adam Smith and David Ricardo who broke up the mercantilist theory with the free trade theories, which are now... Mr. Ricardo a, wasn't Cuban, right? No, Rick, Ricardo, he, he I'm was... I'm thinking of Ricky Ricardo, no, no. I love Lucy. He was a relative of Ricky Ricardo. He <laughs> was a, a, a Spanish or Portuguese Jew whose family had been expelled and they went to England.
1: That's okay. right, so they were from Portugal, okay. they made their way into Holland, or what became Holland, so they were Dutch, they came from, you know, they were familiar with the Dutch finances and the Dutch trading system, yep. and then they wound up in, in, uh, in England, and he, having read Adam Smith, he, he then realized that, hey, this is uh, what I should be writing about, then we'll, we'll talk later about Ricardo, but to get to Manny's point, where we're starting off in the late 1500s, the early 1600s, and what happens in England in this time frame? And um, before we get into that background, I just want to – otherwise I'll forget – to say it. So I, I want to mention, if you'll let me give uh, just a minute on uh, topics I wanted to, to talk about, things that are coming up, so just whatever we want to call it. These are the previews for the next month or two. So uh, can I mention real quickly... Absolutely. The, sure. So, so real quick, here's the the teaser for the, the Nova Southeastern Hamilton exhibition. So Statutes and Stories has teamed up with the AHA Society, and you've heard me mention over the years the Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society. So the AHA Society has teamed up with Nova University with Statutes and Stories, and starting on March 17th, running until April 15th, we are going to have an exhibition at the Cortilla Gallery, which is at NSU, Nova Southeastern University. It's on the second floor of the Sherman Library, which is a beautiful facility, multi purpose facility. And uh, we were going to have, just to give you a rough idea, we're going to have newspapers with opinions. These are op eds, if you will, written by Alexander Hamilton. We're going to have the Grotius book. This is one about, this is a, a, a Dutch, coincidentally, philosopher uh, who, by the way, is, uh, if, if you go to the U.S. Supreme Court, he's on. On the freeze on the ceiling.
2: Hugh- Hugo Grotius, The you, Law of Nations?
1: That's right, Hugo Grotius. We're going to have Hamilton's Hugo Grotius book, Great. Hamilton's Marginalia. All right. And, uh, well, one of these days, I'll ask you if you know what a manacle is. But uh, Hamilton's notations in this book, it was his personal book, is going to be on loan All right. at this exhibition. And we're going to be talking about the dust today, so that's why it's appropriate for me to mention Hugo Grotius. Yep. We're going to have coins, another what I refer to as Hamilton artifacts. So this is the NOVA exhibition, so put it on your calendars. I'll be giving a speech to open the exhibition on March 17th. And the other thing I want to mention is that uh, Statutes and Stories, for the first time, will be doing blogging, and we were given giving social media credentials for the St. Pete Book Fair. So for the last 38 years, this is going to be the 38th year, The St. Petersburg has the Antiquarian Book Fair. And as you know, I'm all about antiquarian old books, especially law books. So uh, if anyone is going to be in the St. Petersburg area, this is April 26th through April 29th. That's when the St. Pete Book Fair meets. And it's the largest book fair in the southeast in the United States. So it's a phenomenal book fair. So uh, enough about books. Uh, now let's get into this. Well, let, let me okay, introduce now. you
0: again, because uh, we're now going Facebook Live. We're here with Adam Levinson with StatuesAndStories.com, who uh, every Monday from you know 7 to 8, we try to get them to go 7 to 9, no, because no, no. we tell the stories of the American history through, uh, through in a manner in which content and how the law actually became the law based on the personalities involved so here we are with adam and uh enjoy because this is uh this is always amazing
2: and and adam i want to point out to our audience that your your lecture on the alex hamilton exhibit at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale will be on Sunday, March 17th, and it's at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, is that right?
1: Correct. It's easy for people to remember because March 17th is St. Patty's Day. Yep. So we're not doing it in the evening because people are going to want to have adult beverages, which yep. we understand. So the lecture and the exhibition, the Alexander Hamilton exhibition, which will be phenomenal, will kick off at 2 o'clock with, uh, with my presentation. Great. And then, I'm sorry, for about uh, every week thereafter, for five weeks, we're going to have another professor or another expert on Alexander Hamilton, including the president of the AHA Society. And I'm telling people when they hear AHA Society, they they think, what? But that's the Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society. So these are the folks who really appreciate Alexander Hamilton's uh, history and what he did for the country, by the way, as an immigrant, because Alexander Hamilton came from the Caribbean. So that's going to be during... March 17th through April 15th. Yes. Pretty much every week there will be another Alexander Hamilton yeah. um, program, and the exhibit will last almost that entire month. Well,
2: my, fellow, have... my fellow Caribbean American, where we, he's a member of the Caribbean American Immigrant Hall of Fame.
0: And I have uh, Alexander Hamilton on my shoulder, a gift from Adam, okay. so that my Facebook livers can see that uh, he's the little yellow man on my head. Great. Go ahead, Adam. So the
1: purpose of this evening's presentation or this discussion uh, dovetails with a recent post, and as as you may have heard, every couple weeks I post on statutesandstories.com. Statutesandstories.com is a free history website, and we look at old laws. We use old statutes to tell American and English history, uh, Western history. So, long story short, the concept here is what's referred to as mercantilism, and this was the economic theory which prevailed for over 250 years prior to the American colonies becoming independent. So, this is the, in this environment, you had what we referred to as mercantilistic theories, and we're going to talk about some of the mercantilistic acts, including the Navigation Acts and the Woolen Act and the Hat Act. and the Molasses Act, the Sugar Act. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But before we get into those laws, those acts of Parliament, we have to understand how mercantilism worked, and what was this theory of mercantilism, which was an economic theory, and what it boiled down to. And I'm welcoming um, Ed, if he wants to chime in, because he's steeped in a lot of this economics from his college background, as I understand. So Mm -hmm. what is mercantilism? And the answer is the idea, as Europe was coming out of a feudal system where you had lords and nobles and the serfs, you were beginning to get some degree of capitalism. uh, But the Mercantilist theory was this notion that it was all about collecting gold for your king, because the king could use that gold to hire soldiers and could use that gold to uh, conquer other areas. So mercantilism was based on this very limited... Let's call it a zero-sum game is what it was. What is a zero-sum game? It means that trade either benefits somebody or hurts somebody. And the more income or the more gold or specie, that's what they refer to the hard currency, the more hard currency you could gather from selling and the less imports you could take in because that means you're losing money if you're importing under this theory. So this was the navigation or the, the mercantilist theory. So what else fit into this kind of a, a worldview? And the concept was the more colonies you had, the more natural resources you could bring into the mother country the more natural resources you could bring in, the more you could manufacture, because they are starting to get manufacturing in England, and the Industrial Revolution will eventually happen. So the more you can import from your colonies, the more you can extract, the more gold and silver you can create. And England didn't have gold mines and silver mines like Spain had in uh, the southern hemisphere of the, of the, or the western hemisphere, but the south of the equator. So England had to come up with other ways of getting currency and getting gold and silver. So this is the, the backdrop to the laws, which eventually led to the American Revolution. So what else can we say about mercantilism? So this is also not just about getting income and getting gold to the king but also granting monopolistic privileges and here your listeners who are conservative immediately Bad. say I don't like monopolies. But, Bad. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Bad. So mercantilism at at its heart was based upon monopolistic protectionism and tariffs and subsidies for protected industries. And uh, those are some of the laws we're going to talk about. So it's all about, under mercantilism, a zero-sum game, meaning governments are competing with one another. They're they're adversaries in this competition in trade. Also, the idea was that you have to have a favorable balance of trade and you have to have colonies and have to fight over colonies in order to supply raw materials. So that's the backdrop for mercantilism. So let's now look at some Specific dates, and we're going to start now with the first Navigation Act and the first mercantilistic law, which is a law that in- involves the government getting involved with private industry, or the beginnings of private industry. And uh, here I'm going to throw out a date for you. So this is 1649, and you have a king in England, uh, following a civil war in England, who gets executed in 1649, and this is Charles the First, and he's a Stuart, and uh, he is replaced, if anyone remembers, by Oliver Cromwell.
2: Yay. That that event is is one of the keys to the freedom of the Anglo-American world compared with the Spanish-Latin American world. The fact that in England, the people, Parliament rebelled and successfully executed the king.
1: What that illustrates, by the way, is that the divine right of monarchs, uh, now you're showing that uh, the people have the right, or at least Parliament, and the, the Lords have the right to intervene. And uh, unlike some of the other European countries, you have a strong tradition in England yep. of. Uh, I'll be careful how to describe it on the radio, but.
0: No, you can describe it however you wish
1: right. So some in England would call it liberal democratic. You have to be careful on this radio stations, yeah. But this notion of, of pushes and uh, pulls and checks and balances between right. Parliament and the king. And uh, the result was in 1649, Cromwell, who, by the way, was a Puritan,
3: yep. and this now
1: gets into a topic of religion. So you had uh, Cromwell as a Puritan is pushing back on uh, some of the Stuarts and that, that dynasty, which is, is uh, sort of Catholic in yep. some of their worldview. Yep. So there's there's a religious dimension of this, of this uh, debate that's taking place in this in, you know, civil strife that's taking place in England. So you have Cromwell come in, and Cromwell realizes that at this time, the navigation and the trading is really monopolized by the Dutch. And let me give you some statistics. So in the 1600s, Dutch shippers and Dutch banks dominated international trade. So here's a number for you. Three quarters of the commercial ships in northern Europe were Dutch which is, if you can just imagine, because it's a small little country, small little area.
2: So they've been, they've been building ships since the beginning of time. Yeah, that was their golden age of the Netherlands, uh, 1600s. And they, yeah, three quarters of the ships in Northern Europe were registered in Holland. But another thing is half of all the books printed in Europe and printed in the world during the 1600s were printed in Holland.
0: Unbelievable.
2: It was a very learned and wealthy place.
0: You, can, are, only you can only get that. You can only get that on WSQF, that. by the way. Yep. Okay, continue.
1: So that is the backdrop. In the 1600s, the Dups, the Dutch, controlled and uh, had a lot of uh, influence in what they referred to as the carrying trade. Right. So goods were being shipped back and forth, and that's why, one of the reasons the Dutch liked free trade, because if they're the ones that are trading and they're trading yep. with other countries, they're going to want And Hugo Grotius, by the way, the Dutch uh, philosopher or, or legal scholar that uh, mm. is recognized as one of the leading figures in international law, wanted to have freedom of the seas and wanted to have the ability, they, he argued, and others that uh, believed in natural rights, mm-hmm. thought that unlike land where people uh, control or own or are able to fence off land, the seas should be free for everybody, similar to the sky and the air. So uh, they believed in free trade, free navigation. And as you're going to see, the British I had something to say about that because they didn't want three quarters of the trade to be monopolized by the Dutch.
0: So, now how was it that now the, the, the Navigation Acts? Uh, I guess when you get when you arrived at Port of Calls, they would hit you up with
2: a tax right there. No, they what go. they said, so, it, well, go ahead.
1: So we understand the ideas of mercantilism. We now have Oliver Cromwell, who's a Puritan, and Oliver Cromwell realizes that, that we need to sort of stand up to the Dutch and start asserting English autonomy and English control. So in 1651, about a year and a half after Charles I is executing, uh, Cromwell and the, there are different names for the parliament, they, they call it today the Rump Parliament, and rump was not a good word back in the day, referring to the rear of uh, whatever animal yeah. we're talking about. So, well, it, uh, it
0: applies today, too. Yeah. I mean, nothing's changed.
1: okay. So the Royal Parliament and, and uh, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, r- write the first Navigation Act. This is in 1651. So now to Manny's point, what does the Navigation Act of 1651 do? And as we're gonna see, there are gonna be multiple Navigation Acts that Britain passes over the years, but starting in 1651. And uh, these are the, the central tenets. Through mercantilism of what Britain and Parliament are trying to accomplish, number one, the idea is that all the ships, if you're going to trade in an English port, and an English port isn't just in London and the the English, um, you know, countryside, the English ports in Europe, and, and uh, you know the whatever you want to call it, across the canal or the, uh, you know, across the sea from the uh, you know from the the, the islands of, of England, Scotland, Wales, etc. Also, the American colonies, the English colonies uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, if you're going to trade in American. colonies. Colonies or English colonies, it has to be an English boat. So they put that's one of the first requirements they put in place. You have to have an English owned boat or, importantly, an American owned boat because remember, the colonies were British, so it had to be a British owned, American owned boat, and three quarters of the crew had to be British or, uh, or American. That was the first component of these navigation acts. The second thing they do is that, remember, the colonies are there to serve the mother country. So any imports that come into the colonies, so for example, if the colonies are trying to buy uh, sugar or whatever other goods from the Dutch colonies and the Dutch islands, the Antilles and the other islands in the Caribbean, those imports had to come through London. Now, think about that for a second, right? If uh, you're trying to import into America or into the American colonies and you have to go to England first, uh, how efficient is it to do that, to go tens of thousands however many miles away? it is uh, so that English merchants can get a piece of the action and so that the king can get a tax and a duty when the money or whatever the goods are go through England for English merchants to serve as middlemen before it can come back to New York. So that's the second component of the...
0: So in other words, taxing was inefficient from the get-go?
3: Yep.
1: It's all about making money for the king. The third requirement, though, is also that not only imports into America or the American colonies had to go through England, but if the colonists want to sell tobacco from the South, for example, from Virginia, to anywhere in Europe or wherever else people want to buy uh, you know, Virginian tobacco, that also has to be sold through London using uh, England as the hub for, for the sales, which is another way of making money for the king and making jobs for the British merchants and for the British, and we're going to talk about this, the corporations that they created and some of the names of these companies, uh, some of us may remember, and I'm going to joke now about uh, the oldest English penny, I'm sorry, the oldest New York penny. If, if you go look, if anyone is interested in old coins, uh, the people refer to it as the oldest New York penny. So uh, what is the oldest New York penny? And I think the quick answer would be that the American Indians, they, they had whatever coins or beads they were using for currency. But the first New York penny was actually a Dutch penny. And uh, the name of the company, I can't speak the Dutch, so I won't even try to pronounce it, but uh, the initials were V-I-C, which were the initials for whatever the name of the, I will tell you the name of the company, but this is the, the Dutch East India Company, which traded, uh, you know, in, in India. In the old Manhattan well, island. I think I it
2: wondered. was the West. Best India, best India company.
1: So the, that's right. So the Dutch controlled and did a lot of trading in the East and in the West. Yep. And, the, and the VIC, I think it's referred to as a DUIT, D-U-I-T. So that was the first New York penny because the Dutch were trading in New York. It started off as New Amsterdam. Right. So now we're going back to these mercantilist policies with the first Navigation Act of 1651. And there's one more component. So the other component is that whenever we sell, we're talking about tobacco now. The American tobacco has to be sold through London before it can be sold anywhere else so that the king and his, his taxing officials can get their pound of flesh. So these are the mercantilist laws. And then later, over time, as you start getting more manufacturing, England puts in place restrictions on our ability as colonies to manufacture. So here we're going to talk later about maybe the Hat Act. So let me throw out to you, you want to take a wild guess what the Hat Act was of 1732?
2: You couldn't manufacture a hat in the American colonies, you had to buy them from England.
1: That's right. The British were manufacturing very good quality hats, so they put in place a law that says the colonies can make hats, but that's a mom-and-pop hat. And you can't have more than two apprentices in your store if you're making hats, because we want to be able to sell the English hats, which were overpriced and uh, coming all the way across the sea, even though Americans would try to make hats. So that's an example of restrictions on what we could do, because we are only colonies. Here's another example, the, uh, the Pig Act. And here, when I talk about pig, it's not the pig that you eat. This is pig iron. The right take a wild guess what the pig act of 1756
2: was jeez you, got you, me there. you had to buy your uh, iron from england not manufacture in the colonies no leather something no pig yeah. Yeah, pig iron yeah oh pig raw iron. raw iron yeah oh cool yep that's my lack of english yep.
1: for you right so here we have this idea that the english are restricting trade which is going to benefit england to make money for the king and also when it comes to manufacturing we could make the iron but we couldn't do finished iron we couldn't convert that iron into we can only give the raw material iron and sell that to england but we couldn't make sophisticated uh, manufactured goods with that island that that iron so they were happy to take our iron but they wanted to then use it to make the finished products so that's the iron act of 1756 and that's one of the things that statutes and stories does i've got these collections of all law books that no one pays attention to, and this is dating back to 1756. Mm -hmm. So I I use the internet to put these stories online. So we're we're talking, again, to review for everybody, we're talking about mercantilism and these English Navigation Acts, which started with Cromwell, in 1651, as the Puritans take over Parliament, and they're trying to react against the Dutch, and they're trying to now give England an opportunity to take on some of this trade and make some of this money, because they just fought this war in England, and they need to pay off some of their debts. So those are the Navigation Acts, and we talked about mercantilism. And uh, by the way, let's give some more background. Uh, Cromwell eventually dies with an infection, and his son doesn't have the wherewithal to continue the uh, you know the procedures and uh, the rump parliament. Uh, they're they're tired of when you have and I'll be careful about puritanical because it's it's a bad adjective, but uh, you had a lot of religious extremism. And what this parliament did under Cromwell is they took the fun as it was described. They yeah. they, they cracked down on Shakespearean theater and they tried to make the society some would say too uptight, and people rebelled against that. And uh, eventually, what does England? do they bring back in they reinstate the, the dynasty yeah. of the, the the Stuarts. So wow. Charles the First was executed, so they bring in Charles II. So he's able to come in in the 1650s, early 16 early 16 I'm sorry, or this is early 1660s. Charles II comes in, he reclaims the throne, reinstates the Stuart line, and here's a little bit of, of interesting history I think. So you had a situation where Cromwell is involved with assassinating and executing Charles the First. So what do you think Charles II Second's gonna do when Charles II takes back over again, and now Cromwell is dead. What does the new king do, who is the son of the old king who was executed? What's he going to do, Charles? Revenge.
2: Go after all the uh, Puritans.
1: So one of the exactly one of the things that Charles the does, and I don't know that it was him per se that does it, but his followers dig up Cromwell, and I think he was buried in, in one of the famous abbeys in London. But they dig up they dig up, they dig up Cromwell, and they re-execute his body, and they, they re and they, they stick his head on a pole, and uh, it's left yep. there to send the message that uh, you don't kill a king. That's regicide is something you got to be very well, careful about. L-
2: you know. l- let me put in a good word for uh, and a bad word for Cromwell. In addition to all these. Uh, Navigation Acts. In 1656, he allowed the Jews back into England. They had been expelled around 1290 by King Edward the First Longshanks. Uh, I think the, the Jews had lent him some money, and he reneged and then kicked them out at the same time. Another racket. Right. But in 1656, Cromwell, who was a Puritan, which means he's an evangelical Christian, uh, decided he wanted to let in, and he did let in uh the jews back into england and that's how david ricardo and benjamin disraeli uh another prominent uh english jew were able to their families were able to come back to england so that's a good thing bad thing for the puritans they banned christmas damn, damn they thought it was too much materialism you know like uh linus in the in the peanuts uh, christmas you know Christmas is, what's Christmas all about? It's not about materialism. It was only really Charles Dickens in in the middle 1800s that got uh, the Christmas that we know today going in London. And then Clement Moore in New York wrote uh, The Visit by St. Nick. Uh, But the Puritans were very tough on Christmas. They thought it was too materialistic. There you go.
1: So we're, we're connecting history to religion, we're connecting history to politics, to economics. Yep. Uh, th- there's a lot we can uh, delve into. And, and I agree with that analysis. So to go back, we talked about Charles the I is executed, Cromwell takes over, and then you have the Stuart line reinstituted with Charles II. Charles II is referred to as the Merry Monarch, and he had lived in Europe for about nine years while he was in exile. He's the Merry Monarch because he's reinstituting theater. He's bringing back Christmas. He's uh, allowing people to live a little bit again, yep. unlike uh, what some would consider to be repressive or uh, too restrictive. Uh,
2: Puritanical. Uh, yep
1: puritanical of a view. Uh, By the way, here's just a little bit of trivia. So although Charles II's wife was not able to have children, he had multiple affairs and multiple lovers, and at least 12 illegitimate children. And you can connect this, by the way, to Diana. Princess Diana was descended from one of the illegitimate children of Charles II.
2: Well, Well, that figures it. Well, it should be mentioned that the wife was a Catholic princess from Portugal, Catherine of Braganza, I think, and she was married in 1660, uh, and as part of her dowry, the Portuguese gave to the British Crown uh, the, the, the land around what, is, what became Bombay. Uh, Bombay was not a good harbor, but it had seven islands that were gathered together, so through landfill, they were able to make a, a, a bay. And the, the word Bombay in English comes from Portuguese, Bombaia, good bay.
0: Wow. Man, is Vidal on a roll today. <laughs> Yay.
1: And he's right, and you're seeing this now connection between... Portuguese and Catholics, yep. and the Stuart line, which came from, from, from not from, uh, from Scotland, itself, but from Scotland, yeah. so there was, there's was a lot of Catholic connections, and that's later going to cause problems, because you're going to have now fights with Catholics and Protestants uh, later on in English history, yep. uh, but here they're getting along because the Protestants were fighting with each other, uh, so we'll fight later with the Catholics. But uh, what I'm talking about now is that you have Charles II comes back in, and uh, what they decide to do is that any law that was passed by the, the Rome Parliament gets repealed because rump parliament was the bad parliament that killed charles the first so they repeal all the old laws they have to decide what laws do we want to keep so in the 1660s and remember the first navigation act was 1651 so in 1660 they realize hey this is a good idea we like this mercantilism because we don't like the Dutch because we want to cut in on their trade so they do the second navigation act which doubles down on the first navigation act and you heard before about what the theory is we need to get more money coming into the king
0: oh, was, in other words you, you increase the tax
1: increase taxes and find yeah. ways of getting tax revenue and here this is something which isn't mercantilism, but I, I think it's also interesting history. Uh, Charles II institutes what's called the hearth tax. You guys want to take a guess what the H-E-A-R-T-H hearth tax uh, is?
2: On fireplaces?
1: Fireplaces. So today we've got... No, you're cheating. Th-
0: did, you did, did Adam like send you cheating notes? Because you're no. making me look really dumb here. No. No, that's good tw- trivia, and you like beat <laughs> me to the to the answer. Okay. Go ahead.
1: So why is a hearth tax important? Because Charles II needs to get money because he's used to living large in France and in Holland, so he needs money. Bon vivant. One of the ways they decide to raise taxes is by doing a tax on fireplaces. And in their mind, this was actually a progressive tax because if you had a big estate and you had 10 fireplaces, and you paid 10 times more than a poor person that only had one fireplace.
0: Oh, so that's where they invented it? Oh, my Uh God.
1: With that said, it was very unpopular with the very poor people because it was everyone had to have a fireplace and some people couldn't afford to pay and it was assessed twice a year, this earth tax. So that's just a little bit of background about how government needs money and this has gone back uh, all the way in time.
2: All right, well, let, wait, wait, wait. But I want to say something good for Charles II, uh, uh, Stuart. His brother was James and uh, they were bon vivants, I agree. But in 1660, uh, as part of fighting the Dutch they managed to negotiate with the dutch so that they took over manhattan and in 1660 that's when
0: new, the famous trade of the new, rifles. A, no no rifles and three muskets no no the, new
2: amsterdam became new york because james stewart was the duke of york and that's how new york became a, a an english colony instead of a dutch colony
0: 1660. Uh, uh, and then eventually ends up uh, being renamed
2: no, it's Not New York. Not renamed,
0: but, I mean, Manhattan ends up being It
2: goes from New Amsterdam to being New York. A-
0: any an association with the state of New York being called the same?
2: It's uh, Well, the city of New York was called York because James Stewart, the brother of Charles Stewart, who was king, was the Duke of York. So he got to name it. There you go.
1: Okay. That, mm-hmm. that history is 100% accurate. So just to review for everybody, the Dutch at the time remember the colonies didn't all start off as British colonies, so New Amsterdam, which was the New York area, was Dutch. And if you go down, by the way, to the very southern part of Manhattan, uh, this is uh, where you don't have the numbered streets, but you have the named streets. Yep. So this at the very tip of Manhattan. This is the old Dutch, in fact, the wall was around the, the old Dutch colony there. So uh, the, those old cobblestone streets, some of them date back to the 1600s when New York was controlled by the Dutch. And uh, it actually, what didn't involve any fighting, the Dutch just surrendered because they didn't have the wherewithal to fight back against the British. They just wanted to trade. They didn't want to fight, yep. at least in North America. But there were three, what they refer to as Anglo-Dutch wars during this time period, 1650s and 1660s. So why is England fighting with the Dutch? And the answer is because Parliament, starting in 1651, passes the Navigation Act and says we're not going to allow Dutch ships to trade. So you have, you know, this, uh, this beginning of a confrontation between the Dutch and the English. And let me now fast forward. So we talked about the first Navigation Act, 1651. We have the second set of Navigation Act, 1660. We're trying to, Britain's trying to make the Navigation Acts even stronger to, again, push out the Dutch and only allow trading with English. And the colonies now are, the, the, the objective is to have money from the colonies be extracted and go back into England to help the king. Now we're going to fast forward to 1696, and what happens in 1696, yet another Navigation Act. And now Britain is realizing that uh, we need to, there's too much... Let's call it smuggling that's taking place, and this is going to get to Manny's point later on about smuggling, so they're trying to track down or, or to, you know, cram, de- clamp down on more smuggling, so uh, the British come up with this idea of vice-admiralty court. So what is a vice-admiralty court? And the colonies, they operated pretty freely on their own, and one of the reasons they operated freely when it came to trade, because remember we said at the beginning, as long as it was an American ship, American ships could trade with England, because we were all part of the same mother country, where their colonies, our ships, and our ships owned, by the way, later on by. Sam Adams or really by John Hancock, uh, you know, can trade freely because it's all part of the same other country. So 1696, they start passing vice admiralty courts. What do these navigation acts do? And they say that if an American smuggler is caught trading with the Dutch, you're going into the, the French areas off of uh, the, you know, the Caribbean or trading with Spanish who are enemies under mercantilism, because if you're trading with them, you're helping them. You should be helping Britain. So instead, if you're tried, you're going to have to go to a court without a jury, and the colonies were all about juries because they wanted to look out for each other, and the colonial juries often wouldn't convict the smugglers. So Britain starts cracking down and saying, no, you're going to have to go to a specialty court, and these specialty courts, you're not going to get a jury. So you're starting to get, in 1696, resentment when the British try to put the thumb down and to restrict colonial navigation and colonial rights.
2: Absolutely. And you know what? Um, Having been born in Cuba, I've read about Pirates of the Caribbean. Those pirates were really free traders
1: or at least they're exerting the ability to uh, to avoid paying taxes. Right?
2: Absolutely, because at Spain at Spain had the same mercantilist system in the in the Caribbean and so in Cuba you were not allowed to trade with the British, the French or the Dutch and there was lots of smuggling cuz people wanted products that came from England. In fact, I can assure you that my favorite cheese is Gouda cheese from holland and i learned to eat that in cuba that was before communism made sure that there was no cheese in cuba but uh the gouda the taste for gouda cheese came uh from the from the colonial days and it was you had to buy it from had to be smuggled in by dutch uh free traders
1: And I like that expression, free traders. Absolutely. Shippers realized there was money to be made, because I think the British, some historians argue, put too high of a tax. For example, the Molasses Act of 1733, if you really get into the weeds, put a tax of six pence, or whatever you want to call it in their Mm -hmm. currency, uh, whereas you could trade and pay a bribe for only one pence instead of paying the six pence if you just sent your ship over to the the Dutch West Indies, and you bought their molasses, as opposed to uh, selling it to the British, so it would go all the way to England, so you would avoid the repressive tax as long as you smuggled and got away with it. Yep. You had these three Anglo-Dutch wars, and we're now talking about the Caribbean. This is 1696. The British put in place with that Navigation Act, these vice-admiralty courts are trying to crack down. They also put in place what's called the Board of Trade and Plantations. Mm-hmm. The Board of Trade and Plantations is an effort by England to try to centralize oversight of the colonies meaning that we're going to have royal authorities who are going to collect information, they're going to to keep an eye on what the colonial assemblies or legislatures are doing, they'll supervise colonial trade, and they'll advise advise London on colonial affairs, so that way Britain can have a good idea of what's going on around the colonies, and this is maybe the beginning of, um, you know, recognizing the colonies all fit together, and the beginnings of some idea of of natural, natural identity or national identity within the colonies, but they resisted British control, and that's something we're going to see all across the, American colonial history is resisting the British when the British try to impede their rights.
2: I think that happened in all the colonial, because uh, all the colonies, because all the European governments, French, Dutch, Spanish, were trying to use the same mercantilist policies. And uh, I think there was the same kind of resistance with, uh, I think the Anglo colonists were the most successful, obviously, but all the colonies were resisting this mercantilism because it, it told you who to trade with and you didn't want to do that.
1: restricted. So, with that said, it's a perfect tie-in. So we started 1651 with the first Navigation Act under Cromwell. It's now 1770. We've had Navigation Acts for the last hundred or twenty years, 120 years. So the question is, was it working? What happened to American shipping? What happened to the trade? And the quick answer, here's some statistics for you. By 1770, before the revolution starts Mm -hmm. really getting underway, nearly one-third of British commercial ships were American-owned. So Americans Mm -hmm. who had access to good timber in Maine and in New Hampshire, Uh, We were building ships, and uh, we had big colonial ports developing. So the Navigation Acts did have the positive effect, at least in the colonies, of hastening the growth of colonial ports. Philadelphia, by the way, became the second largest port in the British Empire, next only to London. Mm -hmm. New York wasn't far behind Philadelphia, so shipbuilding became a big industry. And again, this was because there was that loophole that as long as a ship was American-owned with American crew, it was subject to the protections of the English law. So that Mm -hmm. was a good effect, at least on American shippers.
2: But with that
1: said, if you're paying for smuggling and if you're getting extorted because you have to pay excessive taxes, that may not be the most efficient way to do things. So we talked about mercantilism. We're going to now move on to mercantilist corporations, which we touched on earlier. So we talked about the Dutch East India Company, the Dutch West India Company, which effectively became big institutions because they had these these monopolies. And you could, if you wanted to trade with China or India, it was only the Dutch East India Company and West India Company that could do this kind of trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French got in on the action also. So let me give you a name. And I'm horrible pronouncing foreign languages, but the Jean-Baptiste Colbert, C-O-L-B-E-R-T. Sure. Colbert. Colbert, pronounce his last name?
2: Yeah, Jean-Baptiste Colbert. He was the finance minister for Louis XIV.
1: Exactly. So from 1661 to 1683, say his name again, Ed
2: Jean Baptiste Colbert.
1: Correct. It was the Secretary of Navy but more importantly the finance minister for France and he was all about mercantilism. So mm-hmm. here you have a guy that's putting in place over 150 edicts, you know, regulating how you can uh, do textiles and how you do stained glass and creating new yep. industries in France or trying to create industries. And he's got a famous quote that I love, so I'm going to read it to you. And so he's famous for saying that the art of taxation, cuz yep. remember the goal of a mercantilist is to get money for the king. The art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest amount of feathers, the least possible amount of hissing.
2: I think that uh, the Arthur Laffer of the Laffer curve may have some, probably (laughs) has something to say to uh, Mr. Colbert. I understand. Yep.
1: So, mercantilism is under swing in France. Uh, You know, in colonial Europe, in uh, continental Europe, uh, and some historians and economists would say that as as much as the British were using mercantilist theories, uh, they were not as deep into mercantilism as the the continental Europe was.
2: That's probably right.
1: I'll give you some evidence for this. Uh, There's this concept of salutary neglect, and these are fancy words, everybody, but what is salutary neglect? Anyone want to take a guess? We're talking about taxes, so what would salutary neglect be?
2: Leave them alone. No, not paying your taxes. So, not in other words, it's
1: nod, nod, wink, wink. So, Robert Walpole, one of the British prime ministers, is saying, you know what? We've got all these taxes, but um, ultimately, we want to see trade, and ultimately, it benefits both England and the colonies if we're working with each other and not taxing the heck out of everybody. So, they looked a lot, they looked the other way, and they allowed bribery to take place.
2: So, he was an early supply cider. <laughs>
1: Without knowing it, right so that's Walpole and also Pelham. these are other British right. prime ministers, uh, so under this salutary neglect theory, although you had the taxes, they're looking the other way and uh, here's a great quote by Walpole, and he says, if no restrictions were placed on the colonies, they would flourish. So he understands yep. don't if uh, you've got a good thing yep. don't uh, don't mess with a good thing um, however. Uh, eventually, and now we're going to move forward to 1776, and we're going to start talking about uh, modern economic theory. But whenever we talk about the year 1776, there are two important, probably a lot more than two, but what are the two most important things in my mind in 1776?
0: Let me get this one. That creation is one of
2: them. What's the second? Publishing of a book. You're going to publish a book soon. What what book was published? The Dictionary. No. The (laughs) The Bible. No, the, The Causes of the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Oh, I would have never gotten that.
1: So 1776 is a monumental year in the history of democracy and the history of of government, right? The ability of using John Locke and using uh, Rousseau, using these Enlightenment thinkers, that there's a social contract, and when the government is violating the social contract, it's the right of the people. This is coming right out of the Declaration of Independence to replace government, instituting new government with the consent of the governed. So this is 1776, Declaration of Independence written by Jefferson. But you also have, as Ed just pointed out, the Wealth of Nations is the short title written by Adam Smith, and Adam Smith was from Scotland, and uh, you know he understands that all these monopolies and all these favoritism and special interests to these groups of merchant merchants is not a good thing, and he writes what becomes, and, and here you're right, by the way, when you mention the Bible, Manny, because next to the Bible, The Wealth of Nations is one of the most popular books that's ever been print, printed in the history, and I'm sure there are books in China, but one of the most uh, well-published and well-read books is The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. So now we're going to get into free market capitalism. So that starts with this reaction by Adam Smith. And uh, here I'm going to ask Ed, give me some names of some of your favorite classical economists or economists who build upon Adam Smith's ideas.
2: Well, I'd say the the key one is David Ricardo. He was a free trade uh, theorist. That just only means that that's the one you like the most. No, no, he was the most effective of the free trade. He made some of the most effective free trade arguments because his argument was to say, "Look, uh, trade is a positive sum game. Both sides, if they trade freely, benefit." Absolutely. And so that that was, and that's how the mercantilist system started becoming uh, breaking down with arguments like his.
1: I completely agree So David Ricardo And if you, anyone goes on To Statutes and Stories If you go into It's now called the blog Because the blog Posts the most recent things That I put online Or you could go into the index Because the index is organized The blog is just Whatever I most recently posted Is at the top of the blog But the most recent item In the blog Talks about mercantilism And I'm going to have you Pick pictures of David Ricardo And his book So we're going to talk in, you know, all the topics We're talking about now Are in this post that I did Within the last couple of days So David Ricardo We mentioned him earlier He's of Portuguese ancestry, but via Holland, because his family was kicked out of Portugal. Uh, He is Jewish. His family moves to London. His father is a stockbroker. They make a lot of money in stockbroking. In fact, uh, David Ricardo makes a killing during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, bets the farm, if you will, on the Battle of Waterloo, makes the right decision, and uh, retires with, with a fortune and spends his free time writing about economics. He becomes a member of parliament. So here are some of his ideas that he writes in 1809 in one of his famous books which was called Principles of Political Economy and Taxation. He writes that in 1817, and as I like to do on Statutes and Stories, you don't just hear my opinion, because I'm just a lawyer, I'm not a professional historian, but I weave together the primary sources so you can actually read David Ricardo's original book from 1817, not a modern copy of it, but the original 1817 mm-hmm. version, so you can get into the weeds if you have nothing better to do. So what does he write about in this book and in his theories, Building Upon Adam Smith? He talks about what we refer today as monetarism, but he referred to it as the quantitative or quantity theory of money. And at the time, there's a lot of problems with inflation because why? The Bank of England is printing too much currency, and there's a problem with inflation. And he realizes that excessive banknotes published by or printed by the government is part of the problem.
2: Yeah, but they were fighting the Napoleonic War, so they had a reason.
1: They had a good reason to do printing. Uh, he also points out, this is 1815, so a little bit after the Napoleonic Wars, Yep. towards the end, that uh, England, this is mercantilism now, had taxes on wheat. They called it the corn laws. So the corn laws wasn't just corn. It was on wheat. They, for some crazy reason, referred to wheat as corn. But uh, the corn laws put very high taxes to protect the domestic growers of wheat and, uh, and barley and whatever they're growing in England. And what does that do if you have a high tax on, on commodities? It makes it hard for poor people to afford food and to eat. So he, he criticizes the the prices and the taxes on, on on you know, commodities, on, on food, which were the corn laws. So he writes about that in 1815, and he figures out the law of diminishing marginal returns. And as Ed can tell us, this is a bedrock principle of modern economics. You want to talk yeah. real quickly about comparative advantage and comparative costs?
2: Well, I think that the example they used was uh, England and Portugal. England was better at making woolens and uh, textiles and Portugal is better at making wine so it made sense for each of them to focus on what they could do best and then trade for whatever else they needed and that was an analogy for the whole economy which was how do you everyone should focus on what they can do best and then uh, just trade for the other things.
1: So you have Ricardo building upon Smith, some of the other economists that come around. You've got uh, Say and David Ricardo and Malthus and John Stuart Mill. And the idea here is you want full employment. It's not all about having money going to the king. It's about employing people, employing them efficiently, market efficiency. And here I'll ask Manny, what is the concept, this famous phrase? And I'll give you a hint. It's about... um, something that's invisible that uh at,
0: invisible in, hand
1: there you go the market doesn't act through bureaucrats picking and choosing winners and losers and in one industry or another or who gets the favor who gets the special royal grant it's all about the market through people acting on their own and their own self-interest so this is all about adam smith and modern economics which he writes in 1776 so this is the reaction the pushback on mercantilism and uh, let's move off of the e- economics for a second so there is a war that was Fought leading into 1776. And this law is going to have repercussions for the American colonies. So, this is the French and Indian War. So, you have the Americans are fighting with the colonists, we are fighting against. It's called the French and Indian War because the French were fighting with the Indians against the Americans uh, because uh, the Indians didn't want the colonies uh, continuing to cut into their land, so the Indians were willing to fight with the French in many examples. So uh, this was a long war, a seven-year war is another name for the Spanish. I'm sorry, the the French and Indian War is also called the Seven Years' War. So uh, it ends in 1763, but the problem for the British was they borrowed a lot of money, in order to pay for this war, which they won. And the good news for the colonies was that we now have all the land under Britain, is now controlling all the land that was French territory west of the Appalachian Mountains. So we take on all this new land, but Britain needs to get its money back. And here's some statistics for you. Britain had borrowed heavily during that seven-year period, the Seven-Year War, from British banks and from Dutch banks. Because remember, the Dutch had a lot of money, the Dutch banks in northwestern Europe. So the number was the amount of the English national debt doubled from near at least 75 million pounds to 133 million pounds by 1763 so what does england now have to do england needs to pay off the debt how do they want to pay it off and they want the colonists because we won you know the, the war was fought to help the colonies it was a world war so they start imposing more mercantilist taxes or at least you don't have to call them mercantilist anymore but there are more taxes this is now the the sugar act of 1764 and the tea act The Tea Act, beautiful, of 1773, which leads to a certain famous party, which takes place in Boston. So they start taxing tea, taxing paper, this is the Stamp Act tax. So these are the taxes that result, I remember, for about 150 years, although there were taxes, the British didn't really enforce it. The colonists got away with murder as long as it was American ships. And this was why Hancock and St. Adams were in such a rush to protest when the British started trying to now enforce these tax laws. So here we have some of the background going into the American Revolution. But let me give you some more. We
0: only- so, are we to, are we to doubt the patriotism over commercialism, or <laughs> or are, I don't, we don't want to lose the patriotic side of the revolution? But it seems like it was a business decision.
2: It was in part, it, and it was religious too. It's a, it's an all of you. No, we're above. talking
0: the Godfather here. It's the business. It's not
2: personal. It's part of it. All right, continue.
1: So. One of my favorite historical figures, as we know, Alexander Hamilton. I always try to bring back Alexander Hamilton. So, if we wanted to have a debate about what was Hamilton's philosophy, I think some would say that Hamilton did have mercantilist yep. influences. Why? Yep. He wants to put in place a Bank of the United States. In uh, Patterson, New Jersey, he wants to sort of encourage manufacturing. And from his perspective, he had spent the war with Washington realizing that the troops are starving, they don't have good equipment, they don't have enough clothes, they don't have shoes. He needed to see domestic manufacturing, so he wanted to do what he could to build up America so we could uh, not be dependent upon the British anymore. So he was a little bit mercantilist, but he was also in favor of neutrality. And when we talked at a prior uh, discussion a couple weeks ago about Jay's Treaty, uh, and we can have a debate about Hamilton and Jefferson, mm-hmm. Hamilton was all about neutrality. He didn't want to fight. He just wanted to grow our economy. So I would say that although there were mercantilist Dimensions of Hamilton's thinking. He also was uh, all about growing and uh, prospering, and paying off debt, and building both the government and making it work, and a prosperous economy. So that's a little bit about uh, a little bit of background about Hamilton. And I'll also point out to you that. Um, do we have time for some more trivia? Absolutely. Sure. All right, so we talked about the Stuart Dynasty, how Charles I and James, who was the brother of Charles II, and James uh, was the Duke of York, and that's why New York is referred to as, uh, instead of New Amsterdam, it's it's New York after James I. Uh, but uh, the Stuart Dynasty was preceded by another dynasty, or another royal family, a royal line. This is now Henry VIII and Elizabeth.
2: Tudor. And
1: my question for you is, I don't know if I, I heard something, but I couldn't hear what it was. Tudor. The Tudor. There you go. So the Stuarts were succeeded or followed, I should say, the the Tudor dynasty. And uh, here, I'm not even sure I know the answer, but who, if, if either of you know, who came after the Stuarts? So you had the Tudors.
2: Hanoverians. And the go for it. Hanoverians.
1: There you go. So now we've got
0: Germans. You are just so sexy. It's not even funny how much you know. Ed Vidal, the concrete conservative, historian at large. Okay, here we go. This is a side of Ed that I haven't seen yet. He's been hiding this. So thank you for bringing it out in him. Cuz so I do got to deal with him for the rest of the week.
1: Now, I was waiting for either of you to sort of delve into the modern application of mercantilism and free trade. So I was prepared for you to talk about uh, you know, we could we could talk about 1930s and I don't like to go too far into <laughs> no. American history about tariffs and you know there's yeah, a Yeah, in 1920 if you want to talk about it. In
2: 1929, Herbert Hoover, who was a progressive Republican, signed the Smoot-Hawley Act, which increased tariffs greatly in the United States and led to higher tariffs all over the world, which made the, rece- the, the recession into a depression. So that was a huge mistake. Uh, but going back to uh, the Navigation Acts, I'm afraid to say that here in America, we have a leftover from the Navigation Acts, which is called the Jones Act of approximately 1916, which also says that if you go from one American port to the other, you have to do so in a U.S. flag vessel, which means it has to be built here. And that that has created a real problem for Puerto Rico, because whenever things are shipped to or from Puerto Rico, they have to go in a U.S. flag vessel. So they don't have a choice internationally. Uh, Other shipping companies are often cheaper, more efficient. So... Uh, I would say the Jones Act is something that we should reconsider here in America, because it's a, an example of mercantilism applied today. Uh, but no, the if you go back to 1929 and Smooth hawley those were terrible tariffs.
1: Ed and Manny, I've got another statistic for you since we're talking about smoot Harley. And remember, everybody, this is 2009. The Depression is now underway. And uh, what does Congress do? They put in place, and I'll give you the numbers, uh, the taxes or the tariffs were from 40 to 48%. So these are big tariffs that were put in place. Mm-hmm. Global trade by fell by 65% as yep. a result of the smoot Harley and related tariffs. Yep. Because when one country does a tariff, another country doesn't just sit by and smile. Right. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's like what uh, Calvin Coolidge did. When no, he taxed... no, not
2: Coolidge. No,
0: Herbert Hoover. I'm, you know, don't jump on me. I, I like got to
2: defend it. Silent Cal. Okay, he go ahead.
0: Cal also taxed British uh, imports, and All the right. British returned the favor, and we weren't prepared to get punched in the face like that because the Industrial Revolution wasn't evolved right. enough. So Coolidge, they said he did nothing. Well, he did plenty. He he might have caused the, the Depression of twenty eight.
1: If we have 2 minutes left I think it's safe for me to go back to the prime. By the way this is a phenomenal conversation so thank you. But I also wanted to thank you for the last 2 hours which I heard bits and pieces. So I happen to have in my library a book written by Alan Dershowitz and as you know Alan Dershowitz yeah. is very conservative, if you will, when it comes to uh, being on Fox and defending the, the Trump administration when, with regard to the law. But Alan Dershowitz, when it comes to his politics, is very democratic.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, he reminds he reminds everybody that he is, but he just really upset about the special prosecutor. He thinks that that was a complete witch hunt, and as we believe it is on this show.
1: And I know one of the questions. You were asking your prior callers, is why is it that the American Jewish community? And remember that in the last hour you are asking the questions because today and this weekend was the memorial for uh, for the for the American for the Holocaust. So it's celebrated in America and around the world. So you ask the question, why are American Jews in large numbers democratic and progressive? So there was a book that Dershowitz wrote in 19, 1997, and I have a copy. And he, the name of the book, if anyone is interested in reading it, is called The Vanishing American Jew, and he deals with this question about America has been wonderful. not not just for jews but for all groups and minorities and everybody that lives here because it's such a free society but that is the root of the problem that over 3500 years you had external forces that were applied to Jews, meaning anti-Semitism and discrimination, which kept them cohesive and forced them to stay together. But in an open society like we have, and we're blessed to live here in America, uh, you know, that's the problem now. Is not external threats to Jewish identity, but, uh, you know, the, the society is so open, which has caused problems. So he writes about this 20 years ago in the book, The Vanishing American Jew, and I, I think it's a worthwhile read. And one of these days you should have him on and you should ask him that question, because he writes about it. All yeah, right. I, I would we'll try to I, get
2: him on. You know, if
0: anybody can get him on, it's Edward Vidal. I'll try. Yeah, Ed is uh, the king executive producer. He's the uh, one who's brought this show along. He, he 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 gets all the credit. I just stand around making snarky comments. That's my role. I'm like the color commentator in sports. Well, and your are with the exception of statues and stories, which is your 3D, Adam. Okay, because I'm really getting the contextual. Uh, View of our history, and so carry on.
1: I want to say we're about eight o'clock, and uh, as much as I'd be happy to do another hour, homework awaits and dinner awaits. Uh, do we want to leave on any particular point?
0: I want to leave on um, how you and and Ed are communicating before the show starts, so that he can win. No, all the tri- no, no. So you can get all the trivia right, questions. So today
2: right? is uh... today in honor of the remembrance of the Holocaust. Uh, I picked out a psalm to read 140, 149, just the first four verses. Uh, it's about singing and making uh, music, so that's very appropriate for South Florida. And for pra- Big Radio. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel be glad in its maker, let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with victory. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you very much, Adam. I'll see you on uh, February the 3rd. The 4th, the 9th, the 10th. (laughs) What day was it? No,
2: Sunday, February 10th, we're going to go to
0: Fort Lauderdale. Yes, we'll, we'll... Catch you then, but I think we're going to hear you before then.
1: Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on statutesandstories.com. Thank you. Thank you you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that's the end of our Concrete Conservative show and our Statutes and Stories show. And now you guys get a treat with Chris Ann Hall. Chris Ann Hall is a constitutional attorney. She'll take you for the rest of the night. So Monday's a day for government, for love of freedom, because here on the Concrete Conservative, we've always got to stay free, my friends. So... This next episode, you'll they're 30 minutes apiece. And this one is about life citizenship. Take care,
2: my friends. Birthright citizenship.
0: Okay. Attention, Patriots. This is the
3: Ann Hall Show.